Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Boxing One. And look, I'm pissed off because I didn't get to go out to Chicago this week to take part in and really dive headfirst into all of the NBA draft combine festivities. But the next best thing I can do is bring on a trusted guest and friend who did and is still in Chicago as we are recording this right now. Rich Stamen, Mavs Draft on Twitter. He's been crushing it out there this week, asking great prospect questions, doing some stuff with Rafael Barlow over on NBA Big Board. He is the best. We had a great time recording together again, and I just want to hear all of the great things that he's been doing this week in Chicago. Rich, how you been, my friend? Hey, it's been good. It's been a hectic week. Um, I'd say it's probably the fastest five-day stretch of my life, but it's been incredibly fun. New experience, got to meet a ton of people. If you're ever able in the position to do it, 100% recommend going to Chicago for the Combine. Yeah, I've heard nothing but great things about the event. Obviously, the access is unprecedented with what you can get to, kind of seeing how the sausage is made. But a great point that I know you and Raphael brought up on the podcast is that it's still a little bit private and protected. It hasn't done what Summer League has done, which has turned into this massive fan event where you almost don't have the intimacy to see the process firsthand in the way that you would really want to. So one thing that Rich and I were hoping to do is just answer some questions as well as glean a look into some of those things that he noticed and saw from you know being in the room where the sausage is made, so to speak. So Rich, I'm just going to turn the floor over to you real quickly and like, Overall takeaways, first impressions, some things just on the grand scale that have stood out to you most about being at the Combine this year. Yeah, I mean, you know, for anyone in our position who does this draft, um, for a lot of it's, I'd say most of it's remote, right? You're doing a lot of film watching, right? So let's put ourselves in the in the perspective of someone who's a video scout. They don't travel to these stadiums. They, they are purely film. Almost all video scouts, to my knowledge, are out there at these events and say we're video scouts just in this case, because you know, the way we do it and you finally get to see all the top prospects, at least the ones that are participating in, I'd say I saw 60 to 75% of most of the guys out there, at least at some point shoot a basketball. It's those things where you have to see all the mechanics up close and it really, you know, video can tell a lot about someone's mechanics, but being up there in person, you can see the very fine details, whether a guy's thumb is placed wrong off on the guide hand, things like that, where the hand placement is, things that just don't pop on, on film unless it's un- utterly obvious. I'd say that's the biggest thing. And then on top of that, you know, I'll, I was talking to scouts, agents, you know, team members, other media members. There's so many people. You gather so much information and intel through just even by passing. It's not really like – it's not necessarily rumors. It shows, hey, here's what's up to date. Take what you will of it. And that's that. It's, it's a great experience. Yeah, I definitely got to get involved in that next year then because that sounds like a bunch of fun. So maybe I'll rely on you for some travel plans and maybe a bunk buddy along the way. But Rich, look, a lot of great questions that we got from some of our our viewers or, or risk, you know, Twitter followers and people out there when we tweeted out that we're going to be doing a mailbag episode here trying to take their questions about the combine. And obviously we'll have some topics on our own, but I kind of want to go through the hierarchy of events and all of the things that go on during combine week. And if you could, from being there, seeing them in person, and then thinking about how much they matter to you as a scout would love if you could place them into three categories, 
One is high importance, two is medium importance, and the third would be kind of low importance, didn't really pay attention to it much, don't think it has much bearing in the long term for prospects. That sound all right? Yeah. All right. We'll, we'll try it here. So first one for me is going to be the anthro testing, and this is probably a, a response that requires some nuance to it, but high importance, medium importance, low importance. I, I'll, I'll just preface this. I don't think anything truly at the combine is high importance unless it's a glaring red flag. That's about sure. the only way something would be high importance. If I had to put something in high importance, it's probably this. Okay. And give me the reason for why. What if a guy that has been labeled as short arms or long arms measures mediocre? Like someone you're expecting, like, I, I think a good example of this is Dylan Mitchell, who I think you'll hear his name come up again. People are expecting him to have probably a seven foot plus wingspan and measured at 610, which is fine. But 66, I believe without shoes, it's not anything crazy, right? Where that could hurt his stock. You also have just on the opposite, a guy who played well in five on fives and definitely helped his stock was Isaiah Wong, who was rumored, not really rumored, but the, the whole belief was he doesn't have long arms. Like it's square, probably give or take an inch. And he measured plus four, four and a half. So like things like that, I actually do think it matters. I don't think the nitpicking between how good it is, it's just simply like long, not long relative to expectations, I would say is high. Okay. Yeah. And, and look, there are so many different layers to that testing, whether it's height and wingspan measurements, whether it's like lane agility slides and drills or, or you know, max vert, standing reach, standing vert, like all of those different things come into this. I think the the accumulation of them all is probably important. You want to see if somebody tests really well in all of those areas, that can only help them. If they test poorly in a lot of different areas, that probably can hurt their stock a little bit. But one of the things that I keep trying to remind myself of and, and others as well is the difference between doing well in a lot of these testing set segments and having functional athleticism, right? That a lot of times it's much more about trusting either the film or all of the times that we've scouted and seen a player before, as opposed to just, Oh my God, I didn't know that guy had a 38 inch vertical. He is so much more athletic than I thought. Like I, I tend to default a lot more on trusting the tape in terms of how you utilize a lot of those skills. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree. You can, and some of the guys who are on the opposite end, not that athletic, they still know how to counter it and use it to their strength. Like it, it really is putting in perspective, I think. Yeah, no doubt about it. So anthro testing, if there is one thing that could be high importance, this is going to be it. What about three-on-three three play? Because that team seems to be one of the newer things out there at the Combine right now. Uh, low to medium, somewhere in that. I, I, I don't think it was nothing. I don't think it was a lot. Uh, there was only a couple things where I was like, okay, this is something I haven't seen before. And really with a lot of this, I, I'd say caution yourself if you take a lot of stock in, stock in um, you know, the Combine events the way I'm starting to do it is, okay, I noticed this tendency. How did it pop up on film? And that's how you kind of have to tie it together. I think that's the most useful way to really sure. see this stuff at the combine. You can't just sure. go, oh, I saw him do this. That means this. Like you can't draw the conclusion that way. Sure. I think that's fair. All right. Public facing media segments, right? We hear a lot about the interview portions that teams go, go through with these guys. We won't know much about them, just the rumors afterwards. And it's hard to trust what's real and what's misinformation. But there is public media availability, so to speak, where these guys sit down and are able to answer questions from some people, maybe not as diligent as you about asking accurate questions, but 
also having that time to to be public facing with the media. High importance, medium, low in terms of the takeaway or the performance from some of those guys in those sessions. Low, but I would say there's two things that stood out to me. I'll, I'll use one specific and I'm not going to name the other just, just for the sake of it, um, you know, protecting the player. But I'd say one player who did it, it's mostly the good that can come of it is, all right, I now know what this guy's like. Like I asked Seth Wundy, this is one I'll name, it's a very positive experience. Um, I asked him, I said, what did you do to improve your three-point percentage? It fluctuated year over year. You know, you were 34, 33, then you went to 40, but the free throw percentage has always been there, which you know is an accurate indicator. I told him all of that almost verbatim. And he goes, yeah, you know, I appreciate you asking. Like for me, it was, I had to be a leader. I told my team I'd, I'd lead this team to the NCAA tournament to be a winning team. And in order to be a leader, I had to hit my three-point shots. And things like that, like just having that confidence in himself, telling the story, I think some of it, like it's good to know who he is that's about as much value as it is now on the other end there was a player who I, I won't name who his entire press conference was i'm so great like everything basically hovered about why he's so great even the questions that had nothing to do with himself so i think there's that element but for the most part very low importance yeah and i, I think that that's important to know right a lot of these things seem to be more you can have a self-inflicted wound or you can do some damage to yourself in a lot of ways i don't think this is going to be a positive needle mover for a lot of guys in those situations it can confirm a lot of things you know about them as a person or suspect but not necessarily going to just oh i'm sliding my guy up this guy up my board because I love the way he answered that question. Like it kind of confirms and keeps him in a realistically positive territory in that regard. And, and it's also important reminding some, some folks out there, these players are pretty well prepared for some of these sessions that their agencies, the people who they're working with in their camp, prepare them for what types of questions they're going to be asked, what they should consider in going through an answer. So uh, again, when you know that preparation is coming, you expect sometimes some canned or generally positive responses, but uh, I'm glad to see that there are some guys who do open up, show some candor and character through that process as well. Uh, look, everybody wants to talk about the five on five scrimmages. And I know that will be the focus of kind of the wrap up of our podcast on this end, but high, medium, low importance of the five on five games. Where are you on that? Medium, but with, like two to three guys, I think it was high importance. Brandon Pazemski was one. Ben Shepard absolutely was one. Um, you could say even Turquavion Smith was one. It was just more of an icing on the cake of a bad week here. But that's going the opposite way. So I would say for the most part, medium. If relative to the combine high, I would say I saw – I saw two owners. I saw at least six GMs. This is all like, I mean, just next to me. That I, I don't know what was on the other side. It was pretty split of where teams were. Like, I, I mean, I'll just be honest. I saw Steve Ballmer, like two rows behind me. So like these guys are out here. This is their first time watching these prospects. And if you have a second round pick and you say, hey, I want like your director of scouting says, hey, this is the guy we've agreed on. And the owner goes, this guy sucked in the scrimmage. I didn't see it. Like at the end of the day, the owner still has to sign off on things. So uh, not every organization is on the same process, but it does matter in that regard. I would actually rank it medium high. Yeah, I think that actually makes a, a lot of sense in trying to think about the again, the hierarchy of decision making and first impressions. And, you know, we can talk about biases 
all day if we wanted to in that regard and not wanting to trust the work of scouting departments that go through this year round. But I, I do think that the caveat for me with how important a lot of these scrimmages are is it really separates these prospects that are playing into several different categories. The first are the guys who are clearly too good to be on the floor with some of the other prospects that they're playing with. And, you know, you mentioned Pajemski being a, a, a stock riser. Like I thought Olivier Maxence Prosper did an unbelievable job in that first day of proving himself to be a little bit better than the other guys that he was playing with just looks the part of an NBA player. So in that regard, the scrimmage can be really important in separating you from the field. I also think it can do the exact same on the opposite end. It can show that if you have two days where you are not able to make a positive impact, don't show what you do well on a floor, just kind of floating out there it probably very clearly signifies that you're not ready for the NBA game in some regard. So it's more so about splitting all of these guys into a couple categories where you take two or three off the top and say that they're too good. You take two or three off the bottom and say they're not quite ready yet. And then everything else tends to be kind of a, a crapshoot. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah. I mean, I think so. I, I think that's pretty spot on. Okay. So this year was different for the combine in terms of who scrimmaged and who didn't, because a lot of guys did not play. I mean, they were what 70 something invites and people who were there and tested and only 42, 43 ended up playing. Yeah, it was, it was honestly embarrassing. I think for like just the image of the league where eh, I don't want to like, that's it. It's really like next year, the changes are very welcome. Yeah. And, And I think the challenge in all of this is obviously we've seen in the past teams want to reward those who compete, who play, who take a a bet on themselves. But with this many guys sitting out, I mean, 30 of them, so to speak, particularly guys who are trying to protect an image that they might have of being either a first round pick or a worthwhile investment in the later part of the first, early second round. It's with all of those guys sitting, it's just so hard to, to know if the really high performers are raising against that benchmark. So it almost screws up the top end of the evaluation process. Like I would have loved to have seen Omax Prosper do what he did while there were two, three, four other guys who we thought were first rounders on the floor. Now what he's doing looks a hell of a lot more impressive and really solidifies him in that range. So I agree. I think there's a lot of work to be done to clean this stuff up. The changes that are coming next year, are very, very welcome. Last thing for the category game here, high importance, medium importance, low importance, pro days. You sat in through to a few of them, watched quite a bit of those pro days. How important do you think they really are in the long run? Well, that that's kind of, you know, what I said at the beginning where it's like you had to see guys up close. Um, they, they technically have seating charts. Uh, this might come as a shock to everyone. Not every executive that was assigned a seat court side and showed up to the court side or it's not really that they, they probably just went to one of the stands and watched instead so they could talk but um and not not just like talk and not watch but you know while they watch and stuff because up close more eyes are on you um i think i think the only value i have listed is low again the only value is yet to see these guys their i would say explosiveness whether it pops or not in their shot form that is literally all it's worth there's nothing else in there i think that that means anything because it's a it's basically putting all the cameras on them as they shoot around like doing layup drills yeah, it, 
Yeah, it's it's a, a glorified like driveway workout highlight mixtape thing. And look, you can be impressed and think that guys had more burst or were cleaner shooters, more consistent form than you anticipated, but it's still one on zero work most of the time. So with that said, were there any days or work that did move the needle for you, even in the slightest degree? Did you say that did? Sorry, yeah. my, my Wi-Fi is not friendly. Um Yes, I, I don't want to say the specific player uh, or agency, but there was a workout where I saw a lot of flaws in one player where it was so bad that the conditioning was apparent, things like that. Uh, the shot form was worse than I'd imagined. So I would say there was one where I was like, okay, there's there's red flags here. Hmm. But none it's, for the positive? No, it was there was nothing that wowed me in the positive way. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's interesting, right? And yet pro days still tend to be a pretty large part of the – the hype and the invite process of this. And uh, I don't know how much longer that'll be the case either, because it, it does seem kind of like a, a flawed system in some regard. So Rich, you're doing the Lord's work by being out there and getting so many great opportunities with you. But we came here to answer some questions on a mailbag and just try to get a feel for what everybody on Twitter wants to know about the week. So I'm going to pepper you with some questions. I watched both scrimmages. I've got access to the, the anthro testing numbers there, but your perspective on this is going to far outweigh mine because you've been living it and seeing everything behind the scenes for the last couple of days. So uh, I want to start with a question here from just a really good friend of the program, Stone Hansen. Uh, he's been on our podcast before. He really asked if anybody who wasn't already a lock to be a first rounder solidify themselves as one, whether it's through the scrimmages or elsewhere this week. Yeah, I'd say this guy from France, Victor went, no, I'm just kidding. I, I think, <laughs> I, I think uh, Brandon Pazemski's definitely one. He played in both scrimmages and played very well. I think that that was very valuable. And to me, I, I think he pushed himself in that range to be first surefire top 30. Interesting. So you were a fan of his day two performance there? Because I was a little more split on that second day of the combine. I I think the day one was really good. I mean, just the reads he made, he made the best passes, I would say, of the days, both days, really, the scrimmages. The only downside is he didn't measure well. I think he had a plus two wingspan of what he was without shoes. So it's probably mostly even. That's probably the one thing that teams could hold against him. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I thought he disappeared and blended in a little bit more in day two, um, which it happens in a lot of these games. And sometimes you're out there to kind of move the ball and, and try to let others go through something once you feel like you've proven your point in some regard. So perhaps there's something to that. Uh, I've improved in terms of how I view Brandon Pajemski. I was relatively lower on him coming into this process. I'm starting to get there but I'll probably be one of the the last guys on the table still trying to get him that first round grade on my board. Uh, um, Riley Richards has a question here, just kind of about what you notice physically about guys. He thought Cason Wallace looked a little bit bigger and stronger than he really recognized. Was there anybody, whether it's Cason or others, who you were surprised by their physique or their build being able to see them in person? Yeah, there was no, there was no, hey, I put on 15 pounds in the offseason. Um, but I, there wasn't really any one person who I was like, wow, this guy's bigger in person or anything. Honestly, if anything, I was like, all right, this guy needs more muscle or needs, you know, is shorter than like I think City Sissoko, I thought was going to be 6'8, 6'7. I mean, he was 6'6. 
Yeah. Um, but other than that, I, I actually don't think so. I know the Casey Wallace video I posted kind of probably inspired that. Casey looked just like how I'd seen him in Kentucky or how I'd imagined him to look, I guess, in person out of Kentucky. Gotcha. Yeah. I, again, you'd mentioned the impact of seeing people up close. You know, I think that's a, a fairly appropriate question to ask there. Resball at Resball Pod, another interesting one here. How do you factor in a great off-season event performance into your overall evaluation of the player, right? So let's say there's a guy who performs well at Portsmouth or the Elite, the NBA Draft Combine this week, but it's not a guy that you were really high on coming into the events, but he's starting to play well there. Does that really hold a lot of weight in swaying your opinion on the player? Very few. I would say there's two guys that have actually done it. And one of them, I've already mentioned the name on this episode already, which is Seth Wundy. He played well in, in Portsmouth and he got an invite to the combine and he shot just as well. Like he, he did his game right. He played the exact same role he's going to play in the NBA and that he's been playing. And then I would also say Serge Barry Rice out of Texas. Uh, he climbed the ladder. I mean, through and through, I, I think the shots are real. He was somebody who I, I got to talk to a bit in the media area. And like, I, I really liked him. He was a nice guy. Uh, the pump fake story was really cool. <laughs> Um, if you haven't seen that, I, I posted on my Instagram, uh, at NBA draft film, but not shameless plug, but you know, I think, I think with him, the shooting is so real, even if he is only like six, three, it, yeah. it's a weapon that he's always going to be able to attack. A, like He's always going to get someone out of position because his pump fake is that good. Like I, I told him outright, I think it's the best pump fake I've ever seen evaluating prospects. I don't think there's that much of a debate. Chandler Parsons, maybe like is the only other one. And for me, I just I think he's somebody who has climbed his way into getting one of the last spots in the draft. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Serge Jabari Rice is one of the guys I would have mentioned for this question as well, because he's just been very consistent across all levels that we've seen him over the last month. I was never that high on him, but probably because I just didn't get enough eyeballs on him in the right context. And this free flowing game probably allowed that a little bit more. Um, you know, the, the pump fake thing is interesting because I, I think it sounds like too niche and too like micro skill E to call a legitimate difference maker and game changer in some way. But I also thought that about Jalen Williams from Arkansas a year ago. And like, now he's coming in the NBA and drawing like 18 charges a game and just flopping all over the place. Like when you can be really good at one of these little things that doesn't sound like it's a major skill, but you're so good at it it can become a legitimate part of your arsenal. And his pump fake is, it's not just a great story. Like it is a legitimate asset that he has in his arsenal that, that helps him be, be a really strong performer on the offensive end of the floor. So I, I like your two answers there. Um, Brian kervik has got an interesting one here. How do you evaluate primary scoring options who likely won't be primary options at the next level? And how do you compare that to guys who are already elite role players in college coming into a combine setting? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, I think that's hard. Um, for me, it's what did they do that could scale down into being, if they had one role on the floor, what did they do, right? Uh, for example, Seth Lundy. I think he's he kind of toes the line on that of being both, where – he was in the combine scrimmages, for example. He was the fourth, fifth option. He will never be more than the fourth or fifth option in the NBA. And he killed it in that role. Often moving, he's finding his spots. He's not sitting still. He makes the he goes to the ball. 
right? Like, I mean, you're a coach. You love telling your guys, I'm sure, that are like, you know, you're like, go to go get the ball. And a lot of shooters don't do that. And he really does do that. And I think he's somebody, he was kind of a role player in college. Um, I would say something like that is the best example I can think where you got to find something that scales down. And, or can you be comfortable being the fourth, fifth option? Because like, let's say Amoni Bates, he was the first option at Eastern Michigan, right? He's not going to be the first option ever in an NBA team unless he becomes, he'd have to climb the ladder. I mean, he's got to be that fourth, fifth, third option at best right now where you can get a bucket here and there. But can you make your teammates better while doing less? That's really where the challenge comes in. Yeah, I think it's a great question. And since I read it, I've kind of been thinking more. I have this theory about how these scrimmage rosters are put together. And it is really meant to simulate the roles that these guys will likely have on an NBA floor. They want higher scoring, high volume guys. They want role players next to him. They want a big man out there. They want maybe some front court versatility, like the intentionality that went into how all four of these scrimmage rosters were put together was meant to give guys the opportunity to see how like Seth Lundy, they play in a role that will be appropriate for them in the NBA. But in order for that to work, you probably need those score first options, the Turquavion Smith, Samani Bates of the world who can come into a combine setting and play more with the ball in their hands and try to be that type of creator. I think what you said at the very beginning about having a go-to trait that scales down is really important. And this is most impactful for those smaller guys, the Turquavion Smiths, the undersized guards, maybe an Isaiah Wong also belonging in that category. Like, can you play off ball? is a really big thing for me. I am much more willing to take a risk on a guy who was a primary scoring option, particularly a guard, if I feel like there are enough flashes and impact of his ability to play off ball. Can he shoot it well? Does he do more than just stand there and ball beg in the middle third of the floor and hope that it gets reversed to him? Does he compete on the defensive end of the floor and kind of take that seriously in those moments when maybe he's not getting the touches that he wants? It's easy to defend when you're scoring 20 in a game and you're energized and enthused and engaged. It's really tough to do when you're passing the ball around a little bit more, maybe not getting the same touches in the role that you would desire. Uh, So a, a really good and interesting question there. It was a lesson that I learned a lot in evaluating Trey Murphy a couple of years ago. I thought he was the ultimate, like already, role player scaled down to what he's going to be in the NBA. And I worried so much about like how is he as a driver? Can he put the ball on the deck at all? He didn't really show that at Virginia. Like, no, he's already good at what he's going to be asked to do in the NBA. I think ultimately that makes for a much safer evaluation and why some of those guys tend to get valued earlier in some of these draft circles. Yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree. All right. Looking through some of these questions here. Uh, This was an interesting one on uh, Pajemski because he seems to continue to be one of the names that we want to talk about most here uh, coming out of the combine. So Corey DeMoss asked for a player like Pajemski who played well in the first scrimmage and then was somewhat invisible in the second. Do you think teams still view it as a positive that he played in the second game? Is that viewed as a positive sign of competitiveness as opposed to, Hey, wasn't the same type of performance. Now we might be talking ourselves out of what we saw in the first scrimmage. Yeah. I think the first scrimmage had so much magnitude that it didn't matter what he did in the second, as long as he didn't completely just crap the bed, 
where he just turnovers left and right, admit bad shots, misses, things like that. It was, you know, like he said, he blended in. It's not a bad thing. I, I think they were – I think it says a lot that he played in that second game when other guys suddenly uh, pulled out, you know, I'm sure the whole, like, back soreness. So, like, <laughs> it, it's good to see. I think that's going to vary from team to team, though. Yeah, and I think it also varies from, like, management team and from uh, – you know, agent as well. Like a, a lot of times the decisions to play in the scrimmage or not play in the second game, it's not always up to the prospect sometimes that they put trust in their management team to advise them of something in, in the right way that they want to do it. So I always hesitate to say that if you play one day and don't play the second, that it's a, a negative about your competitiveness. I think it's just a value proposition that goes into that. So as a result of that, like I'm not overwhelmingly positive on, well, Pajemski played the second day. He's a super, super competitor that lifts him no matter what the performance is. But I do tend to agree with you. He played very well on day one to the point where it would have taken an absolute train wreck to talk people out of that on the second day. All right here. We've got a couple other questions here. Um, Nathaniel Miller, great guy out there on Twitter. Follow him if you can. Are there any players that you think may consider the G League Ignite route to set up potential first round picks next year, kind of like Leonard Miller did? I I don't think there's anybody that pops to do so. The the only one, and this is this is not Intel based or anything. This is just purely guessing. Someone like Mohammed, uh, I think it's Gee. That's how I learned actually. Yeah. You say it this, this yep. week. I've been calling him like Rudy Gay all week. So I've been calling him the wrong name for a while. So Muhammad Gee, I think could be somebody who ends up and that's, that's my guess. It's a completely no Intel based. His te- former teammate, F.A. Abagidi yeah. went there. Um, I think his game actually is more benefited from the G league style, but he's not somebody that's exactly like in the Leonard Miller hype uh, camp, I guess like range that, that he had right, like Leonard Miller could have been a, the surprise first rounder. The only other one, actually, I, I thought of one, and is Bobby Quintman. Uh, that could be somebody too. Interesting. But he's not coming back. He's not going back. Yeah, I think he's. I think he's staying in this draft class, and I don't know if there's a promise or at least enough confidence from his camp that he's going to be taken in a, in a really reliable range. But you know, and I'm thinking of guys who need to go to that G League Ignite program. I'm thinking more about really, really raw and underdeveloped guys from the, the level that they're at and coming into the league. So uh, I think, you know, Muhammad G is probably a, a pretty good name to float out there, if anybody. But this is not a class that's really, really high on those super raw kids. Like maybe a Dylan Mitchell in some regard would go through something the same. Uh, but again, I, I think the lessons learned from the Ignite program a couple of years ago was if we're going to have these highly touted recruits and players that come and choose us, we need to surround them with the most valuable role players that we can, that it's not just a take as much high upside raw talent as we can. We've got to put the kids that we have in positions to succeed. So uh, whether it's a Mitchell, a, a G, somebody else out there, you definitely need to make sure that they fit the pieces that you already have on that Ignite roster. Agreed. All right. Let's see if we can find one more really good question here in our comments. Don't want to dive too much into, you know, fake trades or what would we do if we were drafting, like trying to keep this a little bit more combine related here. Uh, 
Last one here, Ben Glover. Has there been any prospect that has risen too far based on the combine? Have we fallen at all into irrational enthusiasm over anybody, whether it's from testing, from scrimmage performance? Like I keep thinking back to the Malachi Richardson effect from a couple of years ago. Like I think that was very, very real and how his stock just took off over the final couple months out of the year. But curious, since you were there up front and you saw more things than just the scrimmages, do you think the hype train might be a little out of control on anybody? <clears throat> There's nobody that really like sticks out as an answer for me, um, which seems good. There was nobody where I was like, okay, we need to kind of calm down on this. Uh, I think it helps that some guys didn't measure because it could have taken them to another level. But I, I don't know. I, I think it's a tough one. I, I think that's really tough to me. There's nobody that got pushed over the edge of like, oh, this guy's so good. His draft range has changed. I haven't seen that. So yeah. fine with me right now. It's a good question, though. It is. And, and again, I think it answers itself in the fact that the hype train never really got going too high on anybody. Like if you're just not that high on Pajemski, you would call that maybe a little bit irrational or out of control. If you don't see it with Omax or Ben Shepard and the guys who are really coming out of this with positive buzz, then maybe that's your opinion on it. But it certainly doesn't seem like anybody lofted themselves into like top 15 territory this year at the combine. So really hard to say things are getting too far out of the control. Um, I'm going to end on this with you, Rich. All right. Quick. Should I stay in the draft? Should I go back to school for a couple of guys that we saw out there? All right. Pride and joy of coach spins over here. Judah Mintz. Stay in school or stay in the draft. Go back to school. Go back to school. I think I'm leaning that way too with you there. All right. Um, Trey Alexander. I think he could probably itch first rounder. I think he's got the Nemhard, the Andrew Nemhard route from last year where 31st pick, I think, made himself a killing borderline all rookie. I think Trey Alexander should go back to school. Okay. I like that one. I'm torn on what he actually will do, but that's what I think. I'm 50. Yeah. I'm I'm very torn on uh, on that one too. I really don't know what to make of him. Grant Nelson, I take rake in that nil money. He's going to make more in nil than he can on a two way. Yep, totally agree. He should be uh, be looking at heading back as well. Jordan Walsh, stay in the draft. I, I think he solidified himself twenty five to forty. I asked three different teams scouts that i said what do you think his range is and every one of them said the exact same thing and, and that's what i thought too before yep. asking him and it was 25 40 and to me that just comes down to do you think you could do better at arkansas year two i don't i think they're gonna have a repeat situation for him personally yep. of you know he's not gonna be able to eat as much and the spacing and all that could the nil maybe exceed it possibly but i mean next year you look at year two of his career he might be on a better track at that point yeah i like that Julian Phillips, guy who did not play. That's the toughest one. Uh, if I were him, I would I would go back and be a lottery pick next year. Next year's class is not good, by the way. Like for for it's not an insult to anybody in the class, anything like that. But it's just sandwiched, right? You got twenty twenty one and twenty two were pretty dang good. Twenty three is elite, as we've seen. I mean, at the top, at least the top of next year is just not there. And then, I mean, we're all looking ahead EYBL right now, all in Adidas, the three years that it's facing with 17U, 16U and 
15U, all of them look outstanding. At the minimum, 2024 doesn't seem like a superstar one. And I apologize for going off, off tangent here. Yeah, yeah. But like, there's at least a lot of star role players, guys, and guys that could emerge as stars. 2025 and 26 have the star power. It's a really tough spot to be in, and it feels like this is where the COVID classes got affected. There's a lot that goes into it, but if you can be a better pick next year, which I think Julian Phillips can, he can easily be a top 20 pick. Like, I, I would do it if I were him. Yeah, it's interesting. And funny enough, he's one of those guys that kind of protected his stock and didn't play. And I thought, go play. You have nothing to lose because, yeah. like you said, if you go back to school, you find yourself in that territory to really increase your stock next year. That's only a positive. But you can play your way into the first round now by a really good performance. So, uh, you know, again, decisions were made that were ostensibly the best ones for him. You can look back on it in hindsight and say it would have been a great opportunity, but um, he is really a fascinating one on that bubble of should he stay or should he head back to school. Rich, you're in Chicago, and you need to do as much as you can to take in that wonderful city while you are still out there. So I am kicking you off the show at this point, but before you go, please let everybody know what you have going on, where they can find you, and your favorite thing thus far about Chicago. Yeah, so uh, Mavs Draft on Twitter – NBA draft film on Instagram uh, over the next month where we are, I mean, just barely, barely a month out from the draft, which just seems unfathomable. I'm going to be posting a ton of content, finishing up a bunch of scouting reports ahead of the deadlines and things like that. And just, yeah, posting community mocks every single week. I put out my own first like solo mock draft uh, based on what I've heard here, everything like that. But to answer the hardest question, you said favorite thing about Chicago Favorite thing about Chicago? What do you got? Man, um, I mean, it's such a cheap answer. Uh, I'll, I'll go with, instead of saying deep dish, I'll, I'll, I'll dive away from that because I've grown okay. to like deep dish. Yeah, I love the skyline. It's beautiful. Here. Yeah. Like the, it's a beautiful concrete jungle. Like, I, I think it's stunning. My view has a, I, I see all, all the tallest buildings in the city. It's really cool. I really like it. Yeah. Give me, give me Lakeshore Drive. <laughs> give me, give me all of that great stuff out there. Uh, you know, Lincoln Park is a really fun neighborhood to be around in. Navy Pier is awesome. Like Chicago is a great, great, great city, and I think the perfect choice to host a combine event. Rich, thank you for taking some of your free time to, to join us here, listeners. Appreciate your support. Rate, review, subscribe. Make sure you stay locked here for everything that we're doing at the Box and One, our Substack, our Twitter, our YouTube channel. A lot of great stuff coming out over the next week. Really appreciate you all, and we will see you next time.